In the swamps and billabongs of Eastern Australia, you might be unlucky enough to stumble across the legendary Bunyip, a huge hulking creature usually described as a cross between a seal and a dog with a long neck and razor claws. According to some Aboriginal myths, the Bunyip was once a man transformed into an evil spirit as punishment for eating a sacred animal. Now he lures men and animals into the water to eat. Throughout the 1800s, many colonial explorers reported sightings of various water-dwelling monsters, all referred to as Bunyips. Some have theorised that the Bunyip is simply a cultural memory of the large marsupials that used to roam the outback. Some have said that they're the fever dreams of explorers paranoid about what monsters they would discover in foreign lands. In the Greek epic, The Odyssey, King Odysseus's ship is blown far off course. He lands on a small wooded island where him and his men are caught by a cyclops, a giant man with one eye set in the middle of his face. On the island of Crete, archaeologists recently discovered the fossilised skeleton of a woolly mammoth. They speculated that the ancient Greeks might also have stumbled across these vast ancient remains. The skull of a woolly mammoth has a hole in the middle the nasal cavity, where a trunk once would have been. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask poets to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy tales they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and joining me are Helen Mort, Romlin Ante and Tija Jin. Just a note to say that this episode may contain adult themes and strong language, so listener discretion is advised. And with that said, welcome everyone. Hi. <laughs> Great to have you on. So tell me, what are the first fairy stories or fables that you remember hearing? Helen? Um, I was thinking about this the other day because we had a box of wine in the house that never seemed to run out and it reminded me that the first story I read was the one about the magic porridge pot that continually refills itself. Um, so there's always porridge but maybe that, that, that stuck in my head because as a kid I was really drawn to it because I loved porridge. That's probably really greedy. It's very wholesome. Um, it is, yeah. And that's what I remember. But I couldn't tell you what happened in the rest of the story, apart from the detail of the porridge pot. That's what stuck with me, the idea of it being replenished over and over. That would be the most compelling thing yeah. to me as like a seven-year-old as well. Yeah. Infinite food. <laughs> Infinite yes. food, yeah. How about you, Romain? I really remember um, the story of the Capre, which is, he's supposed to be a giant, very hairy creature who lives in a balletted tree and he has this very big cigar in his mouth. And he's supposed to, well, he's, he's, he's supposed to be quite malevolent, especially if we disrespect the, the tree that he lives in, but normally he wouldn't, he wouldn't even touch you, he wouldn't, he wouldn't harm you. He's supposed to be safe until you disrespect the tree. <laughs> <laughs> like the Lorax, yeah, that was yeah, the Lorax for me. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? My mum always uh, seems to make up stories as she went along. So I wonder whether these are actually separate stories or whether it's just her. You know, like stuff like, um, if you if you whistle at night, be careful because the gin lad will come and get you because that's the music that they listen out for and then they'll carry you off. And, when, and whenever the gin lad comes to carry people off, they go and they change their faces and they return them back to your house with another face. 
And so it was always very horrifying and... Uh, but I didn't whistle at night, so, <laughs> so I learned. <laughs> Can't fault that efficient method. Yes. <laughs> Helen, I believe you have a classic childhood story you've chosen for us. Can you tell us a little bit about the myth you've chosen? Yeah, so I've chosen the Goldilocks story, um, which I do. I remember that as being one of the first sort of fairy tales that I heard as well. And it's about. Um, as I remember it, a girl who goes to the house of three bears and she goes into the house uninvited and she tries sleeping in their beds and sitting on their chairs and eating their porridge and she's always looking for something that isn't quite good enough. Um, and But I was interested to read when I was researching this that in the early versions of the story, Goldilocks was in fact an elderly woman and she's become younger with the tellings over the years. She turned into into a girl and I, I, I was kind of interested in, in what that signified or why that's happened. Um, and I didn't really get to the bottom of that, but I think thinking about that fed into how I was rewriting it in some way. Mm. So my piece is called Goldilocks Swipes Left. The trees are stern with moonlight, and she is 4am sneaking, breath imperceptible, hacking the ivy-clad cottage. Goldilocks is an emerald insomniac. Goldilocks has at least 124 likes. She uses a Valencia filter, makes the forest architectural and smooth. Now she is butter-soft over the threshold. She thinks that leaving your door unlocked is as good as leaving it ajar, the way she thinks that woodland paths have always been there, that oaks have always been tall, that her hands have always been so dexterous, that she will always be young, that watching is the same as noticing. Inside, there is always a large chair. Does it matter if it's pulled out or if she pulls it? Does it matter if she notices the joinery if her father was a carpenter who worked in sawdust and silence in a workshop above the moors. No matter, she knows she can sit. Goldilocks swipes left at the knots and whirls of the chair, on the cushion still imprinted with bear. Then there is porridge to eat, and this is complicated because Goldilocks posts beach selfies. Goldilocks has been told she has a nice figure, that her body is a man-made vase. Goldilocks is unsure about the globes of her calves, the shape of her biceps, the width of her hips. So when she tastes it is not a matter of hot and cold, but of sweetness and fear. No matter, she knows she can eat. Goldilocks swipes left at porridge. Goldilocks finds pictures of avocado toast, immaculate rolled sushi, untouchable cakes. Goldilocks admires the texture of the oats, the angle of the spoon. Then there are the beds, and beds are complicated because Goldilocks has drowned in beds she doesn't remember swimming in. Goldilocks has felt herself lapped by cold water. She has looked for sheets to cover her. No matter, she knows she can lie down. Goldilocks swipes left at beds, but in the end she huddles in the smallest. Goldilocks is looking for herself in every story. In some, she is shadowy, an old woman who jumps from a window and escapes, hobbling into darkness. Goldilocks touches her face, imagining the leap. She wonders when she became a girl, how her body unravelled. Goldilocks is grieving for the first time. Goldilocks wonders when the bears are coming back, 
what she will do with their anger, how they will look at her, how they will sound. No matter, she knows who she is. But the branches are tangled in the treetops, dancing fierce and abstract. The bears have been outside all night, watching without entering. Their sadness is the daylight moon, and she will never capture it. It's funny, it always had the cadence to me of a cautionary tale, but I remember being very convinced it was a cautionary tale because there was a small girl getting punished by being eaten by bears. But I was very unsure about what she was actually getting punished for. It was like, okay, I cannot go into bears' houses. I think I can manage that. Is this a cautionary tale as well? Um, I don't know if my version is so much a cautionary tale as a tale about looking for things and not finding them mm-hmm. um, or not ever being satisfied with what you have. Um, I had a really hard time when I was writing this getting other poems that I love out of my head. So there's an amazing poem by um, Kai Miller where he kind of describes um, Goldilocks as a colonist um, and it's it, it's really powerful and um, it's only a short poem. And, and I sort of, uh, I, I kind of wasn't sure, I really wanted to write about this story, but I thought it's hard to do that when you know somebody's already done it really well and you're not really sure what you're but I couldn't quite um shake the Goldilocks story for some reason and I realized it was about that sense of somebody uh, someone's loneliness really and so I was thinking why why is she you know it's not like that sense you get when you're walking down a street at night and you can see other people's windows lit uh, behind the glass and you can't help yourself from looking in even if you think someone might see you and they might think you're weird. There's something really compelling about um, strangers' houses. And um, yeah, I was thinking about that, I guess. Yeah, like what are you looking for when you're looking to like snatch glimpses and other people's lives, like total strangers' lives? Like that does imply some kind of need or longing. Yeah, and obviously I was kind of thinking about, it's a bit obvious perhaps, but I was thinking about social media as a window and that little window that you think you have onto other people's lives or the window that you open onto your own life and how you light it and what you do with it and what you choose to show and what you choose to look at and things like that. Mm. What do you think, Tijay? One of the things I loved about your poem is like the 4am sneaking and the idea that we don't really have much privacy in the social media day and age. And I was curious about how you reconciled like Goldilocks's need to confess and check in and talk about what it was that she was doing while also, you know, keeping to herself. Yeah, I guess that's it. Because, yeah, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it, that, that somebody can be seeming to show a lot of things, but also withholding quite a lot at the same time. And I was thinking about that. I kind of, when I was writing the poem, I couldn't quite work out what I thought about Goldilocks. And I felt both sympathetic to her and kind of annoyed with her at the same time. <laughs> but I quite like writing characters like that when I'm not really sure how Mm. I relate to them and uh, how I feel about them because you kind of feel like you're still finding it out as you read it successive times or as you write it um, maybe yeah I think there's this sense of like you said endless dissatisfaction that Goldilocks is feeling and I think you really managed to bring that sense of dissatisfaction out and what I like about it is the repetition of she swipes left, swipe, swipe, swipe. 
And I think that that's true, isn't it? The more we swipe, the more faults we find, and then the more we become dissatisfied of ourselves. What do you think this young Goldilocks thinks about the old version of herself? Mm, yeah, that's what I was... So I was interested in this idea of her being an old woman initially and then being young, and I sort of felt like she, she feels like she's more unhappy in her younger self than she was in the original story, so she's less sure of herself, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of interested in the bears as well from that in terms of the, the others that come into the poem, because... I guess when you think about the original story, you imagine them being angry with her or feeling, you know, as you would do, um, (laughs) trespassed. But I suppose I kept feeling like they weren't really angry as such. Um, They they were just sad. They were sad for her uh, as well, that she she wasn't finding what she was looking for in her trespassing and that they kind of knew she would be there all along and that that, um, it wasn't like this idea that they, they come back and discover her suddenly and they're shocked and angry they're kind of like oh yeah we kind of expected that um (laughs) but it's just sad um so uh, yeah i was thinking about the yeah that in the reverse the reverse aging that's happened to the story as well i guess yeah it's very relatable and very timely as well because the more it seems as if there's so many layers in your poem and the more we find things that we are dissatisfied about the more immature we become, I mean, in today's age. And that's that's the feeling that I get from, from hearing your poem. Yeah, it's funny when we revisit these incredibly well-trodden stories with an eye to, okay, what are the facts on the ground? It does throw up this enormous pathos of, you know, what if you did find this desperately searching woman rooting around in your house? And like, yeah, you might be a little bit affronted, but there's something deeply tragic about that almost yeah it's, I, I wonder how we can um gain back some power from that tragedy like how do we find agency in sadness so i don't necessarily know the answer to that but it's something i was thinking about a lot as we were talking about this poem i think i never explored it in the poem because i didn't know myself but i did sort of think that i wanted a sense that even though she's doing something really arrogant <laughs> and she's also having a really kind of sad experience of, of doing that, she's sort of changed by it or will be changed mm-hmm. by it and she's learning. So the idea that she takes loads of photos of everything but at the end um, there are things that she can't take pictures of, mm-hmm. she can't capture, she can't photograph. I kind of um, sort of liked the idea that that's part of the journey so there is something going on in the sadness so I don't have to document everything or I don't have to uh, put myself um, up for scrutiny in that way maybe and yeah I kept thinking about what might happen outside the frame of the poem um like yeah what what happens next what does she say to the bears or what do they say to her <laughs> yeah but I thought it was more interesting to leave it open so I didn't I didn't kind of go there but maybe there's a sequel Goldilocks to the revenge <laughs> yeah. and next let's bring in Tisha so what story have you chosen for us? So I've chosen the story of Hasan Bulli and he's a famous Turkish Cypriot outlaw. He lived during the same era as Jesse James and we always had different stories told to us about this growing up. But, you know, I grew up in, in London, but it's, uh, you know, when you go back to the village, my village, Yeni Bozici, everyone, you know, has a different version. My great auntie, she, she tells us how she went and she visited him. He had hidden a cave to get away from this man that had framed him for murder. And he lived in many caves around the island. And 
try to like raid raid villages for sheep and just generally was was a bit of a wrong in to some but, <laughs> but yeah very charming very very brave very much in love with Emeta his uncle's wife and it's probably one of the things that kept him grounded and as close to his enemies as he was so this is my version of the story and it's called Bully Hasambulio, Hasambulio. There are so many versions of you, I do not know which to greet. Some used to start their tales hitting a stick to the ground three times. Hak dostum, hak. Allah's truth, my friends, Allah's truth. They dress up during their stories like you did. A bonnet? Shalval? One said your dad was a bad influence, Mush. Let you fight the whole islands. Hiding with your brothers in a cave in the mountains of Maroni, said you shot and killed my cousin Zubair, the policeman. He finishes his story saying, If I said something wrong without intention, forgive me. Lip to cup, lip to cup, bash basha, tet a tet. They burn their tongues at the same time a candle. Yalan chinen mumu azvakit yanar. The candlestick of the liar burns only a short while. You were lied to by your best friend. Said you were awake when you were asleep. Couldn't cope with you loving Emeta, Mush. She, your uncle's wife, preferred you. They ran you out of Mamonia, named you Bulli because you took flight. You struggled for quick feet, no horse, used your own instead. Carob trees. Harnup earrings tickle you while you run. Some say you sprinted seven hours till you could see Otella's tower. Leaving is a loop in this small world. Hasambulio, Hasambulio, ondan ora uchalardu. Kiafetleri deishturip kachalardu. Hasambulio, Hasambulio, over there you took flight, hid yourself in women's clothes to avoid a fight. One day, by Injilli Caves, two men watch your wash, invite you to a safe house. You keep a gun on your lap the entire time, and someone outside tries to shoot you through the keyhole. Sometimes you crawled for so long your stomach hairs gathered mud. Mud, swelling around the hairs like syrup through Kadif. Wherever you go, the villagers give you a bed. In my own, I totoro. They give you a horse from the stables. Your mum comes out to tell you. And Budli, if your body stays in the saddle, you are still in the race. You are no sheep rustler to her. Slumped forward, Budli bird takes flight. During mushroom season, you're caught. The caps cover the grounds outside Chikomanastara. Emete, your cousins, they visited you recently. Times are quiet and mountain asparagus has grown as tall as your knee. You move close to the Byzantine blocks. Maybe it's here you are caught? At the entrance to the monastery, a bird with a human voice sings. Yapma etme dunyasudur bu dunya. Her safanın sonunda vardır bir cefa. This is a world of contradictions. At the end of every good time, comes a not so good time. But I prefer Emeta's version. 
She says, When I cannot be eye to eye with Allah, I come closer to you. Hmm, your charm is overwrought. My eyes, the blue glow of bioluminescent plankton, yakamoz. My lips, the softness of a donkey's ear. But when I hang clothes, if I put my face close against the cloth, I see through it and you see through it. After a shadow there is this, skin refracted like babutsa, cactus fruit, small spines laid out in shape. Hasambuli, Hasambuli, I remember you better than them. So what drew you to this story? I think uh, what drew me to this story were the gaps. I wanted to know more about Emeta. Mm. There's, uh, you know, often you hear about, you know, the wild things that men do to win the love of a woman and their general escapades, but you don't really hear much about the fact that, you know, Emeta was stuck pretty much in her village to deal with the aftermath of him being run off after everyone found out that he was in love with her. So I really wanted to know a bit more about her. What do you prefer about her version? I feel like her version probably captures a different type of humanity because between the two of them, I think that it's slower, less rushed, less fraught. I liked um, a common theme in the folktale is that he fell in love with her washing her, hanging her clothes up. And that felt really relatable, you know, when you're hanging your clothes and you're making eye contact with somebody. It's, uh, I don't necessarily <laughs> make eye contact with someone I'm going to fall in love with, but definitely a pigeon. So, <laughs> yeah. Aromantic very... for some yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that pigeon very much. <laughs> <laughs> Always close to my heart. I think it's such a, a gorgeous, kind of quiet and tender poem. Because it, it, it kind of that shift away from the, the sort of the idea that what's the real story about someone is it the big narrative of their life or is it in the small details is it in things like the the stomach cares with mud on them crawling along i love that or the fact that it's mushroom season and that actually um i could be wrong but it seems to me that the, 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 your poem's suggesting that the truth is actually in those small details and in those moments which is kind of what poetry does it's like bringing those moments to our attention and giving us a kind of greater truth in doing so than just the kind of facts of the narrative. That's so beautiful to hear. Thank you. Um, I do. I, I find I find my comfort in in stillness with poetry. I think many of us do, and yeah, especially when you when you hear. I think sometimes that these stories can become so heavily traumatic. You know, especially like the amount of death that they're kind of drenched in. It's nice to just remember the other things. Yeah, return to those moments of tenderness and human connection, which are kind of there in the story, but sort of as background noise. It's like, yeah, yeah, he was in love, but did you hear about when he broke out of that prison? That kind (laughs) of thing. Yes, and um, you mentioned um, beforehand about that gossip, idea and I feel like the more voices we have in the poem the harder it is as well to find Hassan Bully um, because obviously the people will be like oh he's here I've seen him here I've seen him there but I also agree with Helen um, I really felt that tenderness that every every voice in the poem 
kind of see Hassan bully in a certain light. And I feel that um, Emete's version was very tender and very personal between them. So I, I really like that part in your poem. Tell me about the landscape. It almost seems like one of the primary characters in the poem. I I felt like um, when I was researching this poem and generally Facebooking different members of the family back in my village. Uh, <laughs> so I actually what I, what I did was I I asked my auntie to go to my great auntie, who had bought him the food in the caves to keep him going with all of her cousins. So I asked, so there was a lot of like detective work being done back at the village. But what I could do from England was think about the landscape and how I remembered it quite familiarly. And yeah, and the the intimacies of the landscape I feel quite close to. Whenever I go to Cyprus, uh, last time I went, it was mushroom season. And yeah, I do remember those things as something that I hold on to when I'm in London and, you know, it's like, heavily polluted and disturbingly overladen with AI facial recognition software and so it's yeah it's nice to go back it really comes across that sense that um the the, I guess that the planet carries on telling its own story whatever stories we're busy enacting kind of in in the shorter term on it which obviously um I guess is something that might often thinking about at the moment in quite apocalyptic terms um but but also um in a really beautiful way, in that that sense that things continue to grow quietly, um, even mm. as as um, human dramas are happening, that there's kind of renewal as well as loss, and um, that the mushroom. The, when you mentioned the mushroom season, that little detail just really stuck with me when you were reading it. So it's such a, a yeah, a quiet thing to notice, and it's nice. Yeah. Yeah, um, when you were reading it, I really um, felt the heat of the landscape as well. And it it reminded me of the Philippines where I came from. And little images there like that belly button, mud, muddy belly button, the donkey's ear. I mean, there's no donkey in the Philippines, but it's just that kind of heat temperature. There's that sense of temperature in the poem, which I really, really love. What do you think keeps us coming back to these stories of rogues and outlaws because on one level you know they're breaking the law they're being really disruptive there are lots of arguments to say that you know we should regard them with contempt (laughs) but apparently not well i think that none of these outlaws would really survive at all without some kind of merciful villager just tossing out like a basket of bread somewhere for them to sneak in and grab and run off with and they, they definitely have a harder time of it I think that some of this is charm, but there's also a lot of people who are outlaws because they were framed, for example, um, which is in part some of the case when Fasan Bulli was framed. And yeah, some kind of like a communal justice finding where there isn't much justice in the actual legal system, especially with, with mm. Cyprus at that time, that it was com- completely messed up and... There wasn't much justice for people. Yeah, there's something deeply compelling and almost romantic about collectively living out our fantasies of escaping the constraints of like an imperfect society through these figures. Now, talking of rogues and people who live on the margins, Romelin, I believe you have a myth for us. Yes. So the myth that I'm going to retell is 
the story of the Mananangal. A Mananangal is a legendary creature in a Philippine folktale, and she's an ordinary woman by day, but at night she transforms into a blood-sucking monster. She cuts herself in half. She hides her lower half, and her upper body grows wings, and she flies away to hunt for, for her victims. And I used to be really scared of the Mananangal as a child. <laughs> Every time I was naughty, my mom would would make me look at her and she would say, <laughs> Neneng, Neneng means little girl. Neneng, look at me, I'm going to transform into a Mananangal. <laughs> so, yeah, I was traumatized. <laughs> so your mom was the Mananangal? <laughs> well, she, she was trying to, 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 to um, yes, she is. <laughs> she, yeah. is. <laughs> she was trying to scare me. I was really naughty when I was a kid, but I'm okay now. <laughs> I'm okay now, though. <laughs> yeah, we can uh, confirm that uh, Romlin is as we speak just transforming into <laughs> a demon monster it's a real shame that this isn't a visual medium uh, but would you like to read us your poem yes sure a mananangal replies to a child marble floor oiled by moonlight the town storyteller gathered you around a candela every night he claimed I crashed onto his roof, pierced it with my sword-sharp tongue that descended to a somnolent abdomen. He pulled out an invisible machete, candlelight pulsing on his raised wrist. He swung and bragged how it caught me, my chopped tongue flicking, a headless snake that whips my scarred face. Since then, you've hung bundles of garlic above the doorway, kept a packet of rock salt, and screamed at the sky, Makasariling manananggal, my tongue a patalim of selfish desires. But the streets are unfolding their secrets. Black wings stretch. My stomach smolders, each tendon tears, muscles seethe like sulfur. The air ruptures at each wing's lap, while my lower half hides in the rust of a vulcanizing shop. To be whole is to cut myself in half. To rebuild is to leave all that I love. A flap of my skin drips blood onto the village's alleys, onto the plaza where children sleep, bellies on cement benches, as their siblings rummage for the rejects of the day in plastic bins. My blood steeps a taong grasa, reddens her grime black cheeks as she squats on a footpath and nibbles her own world in a cigarette butt. My blood rattles and fills the can of a man slump at an esquinita, his left eye rotting with a clump of flies. In a city cremated by its residual light, would you not wish to leave your body? Child, would you not take flight? Aren't women more beautiful when they callous into beast? Aren't mothers more lamentable when they don't die but leave? 
to glide over newer cities where rooftops in their camasite glint make you believe in houses with windows that flicker in the glow of new lampara where a banquet table blisters with ube cakes and cherry gelatines and every bed has sheets calicent as skin my child didn't the storyteller warn you that one day you could be the one scavenging for thrown away meat your father the man with an empty can at his feet no machete, no salt, no thumb tracing pearl rosaries, no garlic dangling at the threshold can deter me. In the jungle of my ribcage, a heart flares about to shred the night into songs. Let the town enumerate my faults and hunt down my lower half. My intestines pulverize in the shine of thrown salt and I risk not finding my way back. In another life, I'm just another mother, praying we could make it through daybreak. My fingertips dipped in banal natubig, in a colossal clam held by a sculpted angel. My collarbones sparkle with a bead necklace from you, my child. For now, my blood floods the cities that pass through me. My shoulder blades protrude through my skin and fracture into an expanse of bat-like wings. One day, you'll see a flock of severed women swarm around me, swirling and churning with a fury of typhoons. Hear the riot of our wings and learn, my child. All mothers are manananggal, meshing the sky that is always the color of shredded flesh. That was gorgeous, thank you. So this story for you was initially something that terrified you as a child. How has that changed as you've grown up? Um, I think because... Growing up as well, the Manananggal or Manananggal is always portrayed as the bad person. So not only in folk tales, but also in um, modern media like movies or telenovelas. And she never got to explain herself. Why, why <laughs> is she monstrous? So I thought um, if I were to write about her, then perhaps I could give her an opportunity to explain herself. Mm. And what do you think she thinks about the human world that's cast her out um, I think she understands them um, she understands why people think that she's bad because in, in my poem I try to to really give that's, uh, that sort of voice to, to this persona which is a mother really and I think if a mother is to leave her child obviously she's doing something that is very opposite of what motherhood is generally known by society but I think she understands them although she wants to to use this opportunity to explain herself to her child really I do love a monstrous mother I, uh, and I feel that this poem's strength is that in her severance that so there's some, there's new things being made I, I love that I love like the leaking and the oozing and 
Um, I was wondering, like, what it was in particular about that imagery that attracted you. I think it's those images are quite visceral, and、um, thinking of、um, of my theme, I have I have been reading about. The left behind kids.、Um, I was left behind by my mom growing up as well. She w- she went abroad to work as a nurse,、mm-hmm. while I、um, stayed in the Philippines. And I think if I use a very vivid visceral image in throughout the poem, I could maybe somehow bring out that feeling of、um, danger, of being separated. From from my mother or my mom being separated from from the family,、um, it's very interesting as well as how mananangal the word itself came from the root word tangal, which means to remove and to separate. So I really want to to to, to kind of show that. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. breaking. <laughs> Is it like the monstrosity comes not from something evil within her, but from like the pain and trauma of、yes. like separation and being literally like torn yes. apart? Yes, yes, yes. I think you're right there, and I think、um, everyone could be monstrous if if we want to free ourselves from something like hardships in life, for example, in this poem. But I think. I really want to show as well how not only our urgency to be free can give us the strength, but also we become much stronger if we have someone we love to protect.、Mm. Uh, could you expand a bit about the left behind for people who might not be familiar? So the left behind is a phenomena, mostly for、um, in Eastern Asia. Um, not just in the Philippines,、um, in China as well, we, we see it.、Um, so when you come from a very poor economic background, your parents leave you to work to a bigger city or somewhere else, and they leave behind the children. And the reason why I titled it "A Mananangal Replies to a Child" is because I really want the Mananangal to have her opportunity to explain herself to her child. I want. Her Her to have that chance to say that I le I left you because I have to, otherwise,、um, I don't think the Mananangal needs to explain herself. I've always viewed her as a strong woman,、um, so it's it's that communication between the Mananangal and the child really.、Mm. It becomes this really intimate moment of like a parent asking for forgiveness almost. It seems. I feel like、um, it's it's. It's amazing because it's got so many kind of there is forgiveness but also defiance as you say and it's that that contradiction、um, and it kind of brings back that sense、um, the, the idea at the end that that all mothers are like this and all people are like this、mm. that we contain multitudes and that it, it's not straightforward. There's, there's also that kind of I, I got a real feeling. When you read the poem of flying all the way through, it's like we're swooping over somewhere. The way you look at things from a plane, and、um, that that image of the, the the city cremated by lights really adds that. And so you get the sense that the person who's talking to us has kind of seen everything as well. They've got、yes. a perspective that the rest of us don't have. If we're earthbound, there's something nice about that kind of omniscience, I guess. That you get. Oh, thank you. I guess when Just going back to the story, when my mother left,、um, 
at that point, from a child's perspective, I don't know her reasons, but I'm sure that from a mother's perspective, she knows why she left. And I think that's why I use the Manananggal as well, because obviously she could fly away and she could see all what, all that's happening. So It's like a really compelling way of thinking through the way in which the adult world and its sometimes monstrous demands that it places on people, especially carers, seem to a childlike imagination. I guess all all poems do that. In, in, it's that that nice thing that you can get from poetry about um, knowing and not knowing at the same time, um, because um, you know when we write, there's so much confidence in in like there's so much confidence in the language in in your poem, but also yeah, so much recognition of what we don't know and kind mm. of um, it feels like like I say that there's that sense of it containing multitudes that I loved. Yeah, in in all of your poems, really, there is that sense of the freedom you could get by exploring these kinds of areas of taboo, areas that we're used to sort of shying away from, whether that's Goldilocks almost looking on in envy at her older self, which who's not bound by, I guess, the standards by which maybe a younger woman are, or, or the outlaw or the monster. There's something really addictive about these kinds of stories what do, what do you think that is i don't know I, I feel there's something kind of urgent about where we're at in our time and we're looking around us and feeling completely helpless with the amount of monsters around us in suits and just generally i feel out of control and i'm trying to find some kind of solace in the monsters who are not monsters the people who we've been brainwashed into thinking of as monsters because that's what's been drip fed to us so, so I'm, I mean it all sounds quite conspiratorial but but I do I do feel like that's what my obsession with this kind of thing is is coming from mm. I don't believe the baddies are the baddies and the goodies are the goodies yeah um I really um agree with DJ I think that there's this sense of mon- monstrosity in everyone anyway but I, I guess my question while I was writing the poem was what what is the reason behind that monstrosity and that's what I really wanted to explore. I suppose um, my response to Goldilocks was kind of connected to that, those things. It was about freedom, that sometimes the freedom that we seem to have isn't a freedom or it, it, it kind of traps us in different ways and um, it's a way of distracting us maybe or making us think that we've got a lot more agency than we have and that you can still you can be free enough to break into someone else's house you can have that, but still be kind of um you know in a in a cage of your own making i guess yeah. mm. well that seems like a good place to leave it thank you for joining us for stories of monsters and outlaws and home invaders and thank you so much to our guests Helen Moore, Romlin Ante and Tija Chin. I've been your host Eleanor Penny and this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew, our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth and this project is supported by the Arts Council England and the lovely folks at Spread the Word. We'll have more stories of outlaws and intrigue and all things mythical for you next time. And until then, sweet dreams and thanks for listening.